0: I'd just like to say uh, thank you to all of you for making me feel so welcome here in Omaha. Is that how you pronounce it out here? Omaha. My uncle is a corn husker. Does that not do anything for me with you people? Not only is it Reformation Weekend, But apparently, as was all over the news last night, the Cornhuskers won. It is a great weekend. And I thought it was only in the South that college football and Christianity mixed. But apparently here in the Midwest, it mixes as well. I'd like to say thank you to the pastor. It's been a delightful couple of days for me to spend time with him especially, and to spend time with the rest of your staff that I've enjoyed uh, the occasion to be with, and with you as well. It's been a real pleasure. And also thanks to Martin. What a great name, Martin. I think his middle name is Luther. Uh, Martin and the musicians up here. And I was so thrilled that they sang A Mighty Fortress, had us sang A Mighty Fortress is our God. That was not the First hymn that Luther wrote, certainly wasn't the last hymn that he wrote, but I think it was the best hymn that he wrote. He wrote it in 1527. And in 1527, the city of Wittenberg, Luther's home, was dealing with one of the outbreaks of the plague. It was so severe that Frederick the Wise ordered the university shut down and shipped his students off and his professors off so that they wouldn't be infected by the plague. But Luther stayed in the city, refused the order. Stayed, turned his home into a makeshift hospital for those who were affected by the plague. Luther was vilified in the year 1527. He had been under personal attack ever since he nailed the 95 Theses to the church door back on October 31st, 1517. But in 1527, there was a particularly vicious series of personal attacks. On Martin Luther, by friends and foes. And then to top it all off, in the year 1527, Martin and Katie Luther had to bury their infant son, who had died that year, shortly after childbirth. And in that year, 1527, Luther can say, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark. Never failing. If we go back in time, 10 years from 1527 to 1517, it was in 1517 that Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the church door. I spent some time during the Sunday school hour with the second and third graders talking to them about Martin Luther, and I tried to impress upon them to please not nail stuff to the church door nor to your doors at home. So if they do that, it's not my fault. Don't blame them. But on October 31st, 1517, and I love it when Sundays fall on Reformation Day. It's got to be the best day of the year. I always look ahead to see when does Reformation Day fall. You know, we look at Christmas, not I look for Reformation Day. And when it's on a Sunday, that's exciting. I can remember where I've been for just about almost every Reformation Day of my life. I am a church history geek, I confess. And I vividly, distinctly remember one year in particular, 2002. Reformation Day 2002 found me in Salt Lake City, Utah. A very odd place to be on Reformation Day. But I checked into the hotel, it was a large hotel, and the desk clerk slid the keys across and said, my room number, 1517. (laughs) I was so excited. It was of the Lord. And this was before cell phones were so prominent. So I had those, remember you had to buy those calling cards, you know, to get minutes. And I had the calling card with minutes and there in the lobby was this archaic, instrument of the past, the thing they called a payphone. And I went over to that pay phone and I dialed my home number and I said to my wife and she said, Well did you get there? Did you arrive okay? Yes, yes, everything. You'll never guess my room number. And she goes, fifteen seventeen. She guessed. I was so happy. That's why I married her. Because she knew what that would mean to me. So here we are on Reformation Day. And one of the reasons why the Reformation is so important, not only because it started this thing that we're all a part of called Protestantism, but because central to what the Reformation was about is what this church is about, is what we as Christians must be about, and that is the Word of God and at the center of the word of god the gospel of jesus christ and there is a doctrine that comes to us from the reformation we call it sola scriptura the doctrine of scripture alone the bulletin has the sermon title spare everything or i'm sorry we can spare everything except the word that's actually a direct quote from martin luther Martin Luther was called upon to dedicate a church building. It was actually the first church building built for the new church, the Evangelische Church. All of the others had been formerly Roman Catholic that under the Protestant Reformation converted over to be Evangelische, or later Lutheran churches. But in this particular town, the church burnt down and they had to build a new one. And so this is the first church That is built as an Evangelical church, and who better to call upon to dedicate it than Martin Luther? And when Martin Luther called up or uh, came upon the, came there and presented his sermon of dedication, he said, "No matter what this church is going to be about, make sure it is about preaching the word, because we can spare everything; we can let it all go." except the preaching of the Word. That is a central plank of what this church is committed to, of what we as Christians should be, must be committed to. The authority, the inspiration, the inerrancy, the power of the Word of God in our lives. The doctrine of Scripture And the doctrine of Scripture and Scripture itself must matter greatly to us. But it doesn't matter greatly to everyone. In fact, there are some who would disagree with the level of importance that we attach to Scripture. Here's a quote from one. It is full of interest. It has noble poetry in it and some clever fables and some blood-drenched history, and some good morals, and a wealth of obscenity, and upwards of a thousand lies. And that's what Mark Twain said about Scripture. And if we fast forward to our own day, we know that there are those who don't think all that highly of Scripture. Sociologists tell us that we're caught in a transition time. It seems like there are always these generational differences, the the generation gap. But in our day and age, that gap, those distinctions seem more pronounced, as if we are looking at a cataclysmic shift in culture. We talk about modern and postmodern culture. And we're in this transition era. And some of you sense that as you look at a, a different generation and you think they just even speak a different language, as if they come from a different planet in this modern and postmodern transition time. Neither one are necessarily friends of Scripture. In fact, if we just look at modernism and modernity, is all about celebrating the genius of the present. The technologies, the advancements, the the science of our age that makes an ancient book look like something that works for kids in Sunday school, but doesn't have much more to say beyond that. Now, I'm not picking on the field of science by any stretch. But there is such a thing as maybe we could call it scientism that almost turns our creations of the present into idols that we think will give us the answers, supply what we need, and cause us to look down from the ends of our noses upon an ancient book of fable and mythology. And then there's postmodernism. Now I know it's it's later than it was for the early service, but it's still the morning. But here's a definition from one of the postmoderns himself about postmodernism. And he said, I define postmodernism as, and here are the tricky words, incredulity towards metanarratives. At this point, you're all thinking, I should have gone with the kids into children's church. What's he talking about? Incredulity, skepticism, disbelief, suspicion. And what's a metanarrative? A metanarrative is a grand story, an overarching story that gives shape and meaning and structure and is truth and makes sense of our life and our world. And postmodernism is saying there is no such thing. All we are left with are local truths, small t, plural. And here we say that this grand meta-narrative of Scripture is absolute truth, capital T, for all people, in all places, in all times. And postmodernism returns, we don't think so. The Bible may work for you, but uh, Buddhist or, or some form of Zen meditation works for this person, and, and the Koran works for this person, and we call that religious pluralism, a symptom of our postmodern age that truth is unattainable beyond our grasp. Well, in light of all that, I have a question. What do we say to a watching world that does not think it needs Scripture? What do we say to a world that doesn't want God's Word? Now, as you're letting that question roll around in your head, let me throw out another one. Because we are very much influenced by the culture in which we live And we're not always that aware of it. It's sort of like the atmosphere that we breathe. Back in Lancaster, and and it's beyond me, why your pastor strikes me as a very intelligent man, is unable to pronounce the name of my hometown. It's just simply Lancaster. That's all. Rolls off the tongue beautifully. Not quite Omaha, but it's close. And a little bit south of us, we have what we affectionately call in Lancaster County, mushroom country. And it reeks of fungus because that's all they grow there is mushrooms. And I have to drive through there to get to my parents' house when we go and visit our parents, my parents. And the people who live there, you know what they say? We don't even notice it anymore. In cultures like that. So here's the question Can we sometimes be affected by these modernist or postmodernist ideas? And maybe through our own experiences, can we sometimes let in the idea that maybe God's Word isn't best after all? Now, uh, it's Sunday morning, and we're all buttoned up and very Christian this morning. So I know that doesn't apply to you in particular. So don't think of yourself. Think of somebody else randomly in the congregation that that applies to. But do we ever let in a little doubt about the effectiveness or the truthfulness of God's word. And in, in Bible times. When they were raising kids. They, they didn't have ADD kids. So maybe as a family. We need something other than the Bible. To help us. Because after all. Life in the 21st century is pretty complicated. And this book is pretty simple. And it comes from a simple age. Pretty removed from the lives you and I live. And so maybe there are other voices that we ought to listen to if we want to know how to get this life right. Or maybe it goes something like this. You know, I've been reading this book for years. I've been trying to make it work, and sometimes it just doesn't always seem to work. Particular sins we struggle with. We read verses. We rely on the power of the Spirit. We rely on Christ living in us. We don't always experience the victory that we desire. And we begin to open the door a little bit to doubting the effectiveness of God's Word. Or we commit the sin that James tells us. We read it. We hear it. But we choose not to live it. We just choose not to obey it. We'll follow another voice. We'll go another way. Because maybe, and you would never say this out loud, and, and you don't even think this. Remember, it's somebody else randomly in the congregation. Maybe God's word isn't as powerful. So here's the question. What do we say to a world and what do we say to ourselves when we wonder about the power of this book, the authority of this book, the truthfulness of this book for all times, for all peoples, in all places, and even in the complexities of 21st century life? How does this book work? Well, to help us, let's take a look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Curiously enough, both First Peter chapter one and Second Peter chapter one have a lot to say about Scripture. Both of his opening chapters. It's in chapter one that Peter, or chapter one of Second uh, Peter, that Peter talks about the doctrine of inspiration. But I want to look with you at the end of First Peter chapter one, verses twenty-two to twenty-five. And I guess I would say to initially answer the question, why does the doctrine of Scripture matter and how does it speak to a watching world and how does it speak to us when that sense of doubt slips in, is this. Scripture matters because it has the true answers to the questions that everyone is going to ask sooner or later. That Scripture asks the same questions everybody will eventually ask sooner or later. And that Scripture alone has the true and right answers. Well, let's look at this text together. I'm going to make you work this morning. As I read, I want you to try to identify the main sentence of these couple verses. What's the main word? What's the main verb? What's the main sentence? Well, here we go. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now, in my humble opinion, I would venture that up in verse 22 is the main word and the main sentence. The word comes to us as an imperative. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That that is on the heels of what Peter has just established in the first 21 verses in the power of salvation, the reality of our new life in Christ, that as a consequence of that, having been purified, his summary statement there in the first part of verse 22 of the previous verses, as a consequence of that, you now love one another earnestly from a pure heart. What a great description. Think about that. Not love one another half-heartedly. Not love one another when it's a good day for you. Not love one another when... But earnestly, zealously, devotedly, wholeheartedly, full-throttled love from a pure heart. Now, that's the hard one. Not only do we have to love one another, but it has to be from a pure heart has to be the right motive. But let that sink in for a little bit. What a beautiful description. Earnest love for one another from pure hearts. Who doesn't want that? Who does not want that? In the communities in which you live. Who doesn't want that for a church Earnest love for one another from pure hearts. Sacrificial love for one another from pure hearts. Who doesn't want that in a marriage relationship? That kind of love for one another. Who doesn't want that in a family? How does this not speak to one of our fundamental human needs? How does this not make you want to stand up, thrust your hand high into the air and say, I want that. That's what I want to be true of the communities of my life. That kind of a love. I think that's the main verb of this section. The main clause. What's interesting to me is all of the supporting material that Peter uses to underscore that and to give a foundation to that, and I would even argue to show how that is possible. And verses 23 to 25 is the supporting material. Verses 23 to 25 show how this love for one, an earnest love for one another from a pure heart, how it works, how it comes about, how it's even possible. And the key little word there is sense. 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 You know as you read your Bible, you should be paying attention to these the ideas and the connections of ideas and what are the main points and what are subpoints and you also need to pay attention to the little words, the little connecting words and the connecting word "since" is an interesting word. It gives the sense that this is natural because this happens and because this is so, you do this there's an automatic sense to it. That as you come to grips with verses 23 to 25, you love one another earnestly from a pure heart. It happens. It just flows naturally. And the essence of verse 23 to 25 has everything to do with scripture. The power of the word of God, the abiding power of the word of God. Let's look at it. You can love one another because you've been born again. And you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. And Peter says three things here about the word, this seed, this word. It, first of all, it's the word of God. It's the word of God. Over in Second Peter chapter 1, he's going to say, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths like the Greeks and the Greek mythology, the sort of human creation of the gods. No. God breathed out his word and men wrote it down. Top down, that's the doctrine of inspiration. God gave us his word. It's his word and that's why it has authority. That's why it's truthful. That's why it's powerful. If it were a human word, Mark Twain's quote would be right. Has some good poetry. Fascinating, blood-drenched history. If it were a human book, that's as much as we can say about it. But if it's the Word of God, we have to say something else. And it's living. Living implies active and dynamic. And then it's abiding. And things that are abiding remain. They're permanent. They have staying power. They transcend cultural norms and cultural practices and cultural sensibilities. They outlive the Greco Roman world. And something that's abiding outlives the Middle Ages. And something that's abiding outlives the Renaissance. And something that's abiding outlives modernity. And something that's abiding will even outlive postmodernism. It's permanent. Now, to prove his point, Peter quotes the Old Testament. And this is very insightful. Sometimes when the New Testament authors are quoting the Old Testament, they're only quoting the Old Testament for the very particular piece they want. Other times, though, these New Testament authors lived and breathed the Old Testament. The the, the Hebrew Tanakh, the Old Testament, was their life. It was Part of the fabric of their identity. And as they would quote a text, sometimes they have more than just the particular text they have in mind. And I think that's the case here in First Peter chapter 1. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 40. Now, if you can do this, or maybe look uh, over your spouse's or uh, your, your children's Bible next to you, but if you've got First Peter chapter 1, keep your finger there and go back with me to Isaiah chapter 40, because the quote comes from Isaiah chapter 40. One of the most beautiful chapters in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 40, ends with mounting up with wings as eagles and begins with the wonderful word comfort. Isaiah 40 is a transition in the prophetic book of Isaiah. Chapters 1 to 39 are judgment uh, as if peals of a judgment bell ring out. So cycle after cycle after cycle of judgment of Isaiah chapter 1 through 39 and then we get to chapter 40 and it's called the book of comfort because of the first word comfort well we pick it up in chapter 40 verse 6 and as you listen to this think about what peter is using from here but also think about what he doesn't use a voice says cry and i said what shall i cry and here's what he is to cry here's the answer all flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Now the original audience for this text is an audience that will find itself in exile in Babylon. Isaiah writes this prophecy before Israel is exiled, and chapters 40 to 66 project ahead to when God will deliver his people from Israel and bring them back into the promised land, and this is the book of comfort. And if you were to put yourself in those shoes, here's what you might be thinking. First of all, you'd be in shock. You were God's people. Jehovah was your God. And everything you thought was permanent in your life was shaken up. Babylon came in. Of course we knew Assyria would take Israel. They were sinful up there. They had their false altars. They would never come down to Jerusalem and worship with us. They set up their own high altar. So of course they were, but not... Not we down here in Judah. We were the apple of God's eye. We had Jerusalem. He loved us. And in comes Babylon and wipes out the holy city and wipes out the temple and takes the best of Israel and puts them as captive slaves in the court of the king and tie up everybody else and cart them across the desert and exiled people, strangers in a strange land. How could this happen? And then we have this word of prophecy that says we're just going to up and go back. Have you not seen the power of Babylon? And after Babylon comes the Medes and the Persians. Have you not seen the power of the great Medes and Persians, the great Persian kings? And we're just a tiny people, captive slaves, and we're going to go back to... And here's the word of the prophet... Surely the people are grass. What we think matters, what we think is permanent, what we think is abiding, what we think is actually temporary. And what is permanent is the word of God. I think Isaiah's audience would be skeptical when they heard the book of comfort being captive in the land of Babylon. And yet the prophet is telling them that this is the word they need to cling to. This is the word that abides. This is the word that remains. And what you think is permanent, what you think has something to offer, what you think has the answer. It's like grass. Withers up, dries up, dies. It's like a flower. Beautiful, Eventually it'll wither, and it'll fall, and the petals will drop off, shrivel up, and it'll die. And that's what these things that are in front of us that we think are authoritative or true or right voices. Well, in light of this, we're to listen to the Word, the Word that alone abides when all of these other things pass. The transitory things pass. Now hold your finger in Isaiah because we're going to come back to it, but go back with me to 1 Peter because something very interesting happens here at the end of this Old Testament quote, which is stressing, fleshing out the idea that God's word alone is living, God's word alone is abiding, and other things fail and pass. At the end of this, Peter says this, and this is the word, I'm sorry. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Two things he says there. It's the good news. That's what that's what the gospel means. Evangelism, evangelical means good news, and it was preached to you. This is what Jesus did. He came to make God known, proclaim the Father. And when Jesus left, he appointed his apostles to do that. The apostolic mission. And the apostles established the church, and that's the church's mission, to make God known, to preach the good news. This is the good news that was preached to you, and it's the good news that you need to preach. But go back with me to Isaiah chapter 40 now. Where did Peter get this idea, the good news that was preached to you? Look at verse 9 of chapter 40. Back in verse 9 of chapter 40, Isaiah says, Get you up to a high mountain. Now, I know that's hard for you here in the Midwest to conceive of. So we'll just change a little bit. Get you up to a significant looking hill. Does that work? Okay. O Zion, herald of good news. Heralds preach. And I guess it's true that preachers herald. It goes both ways, I guess. See where he's drawing this from? And it says, Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. And what is this good news? Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold your God. Go over to verses 10 and 11. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with you. This is the good news of comfort that the prophet Isaiah is proclaiming to captive Israel when they think all appearances to the contrary, that their goose is cooked and they're done. And in light of that, here's the good news. Behold your God. And I think Peter has that in mind when he comes back to 1 Peter and he says, and this is the good news that was heralded to you. And we can say something even better than what Isaiah could say. Because we can say, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world and is the chief shepherd who will gather us up into his arms and carry us in his bosom. And that's the good news. That's the power of the gospel. That's the comfort of the gospel. That's the truth of the gospel. And whether the world knows that it needs it or not, and whether the world cares about whether it needs it or not, that's what we are to preach. What do we say to a world that is skeptical, to a world that from its pride doesn't think it needs an ancient book? We say, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. We say, this is the good news of the gospel. Back in chapter 40, you remember what this prophet was? He was a voice crying in the wilderness. And you may feel that way in your neighborhood, in your work, maybe even among your own family. You feel like a voice crying in the wilderness to an audience that doesn't even want to listen to what you have to say. And it is precisely in that situation that we're simply called to preach the good news. The worst kind of selfishness is selfishness with the gospel. It was the good news that was preached to you. It's the good news that is, I've been around this church enough to know, in these couple days to know, that it's the good news that is preached to you You dare not be selfish with it. Proclaim, herald, get yourself up on a high mountain and say, Behold, God. But what about us? What about our skepticism? What about those times that we wonder about the power of God at work? What about those times we neglect it and listen to other voices? What about those times that we think maybe it doesn't have all the answers? Maybe it's not quite going to speak to my situation. We have a lesson from Peter that speaks to that. Remember John chapter 6? John chapter 6 is a very long chapter covering the events of a very long day with an interesting twist in turn. It starts off with a crowd of 5,000 plus, And Jesus feeds them miraculously. And they're amazed. What a show. Remember, these are the days before television. These are the days before they had Bo Pelini leading the Huskers to victory. So they go and watch jesus do a show and then he starts teaching i am the bread of god who's come down from heaven and if you want to see the father you've got to eat of me and the crowd said this guy is nuts and they grumbled at him and they said isn't he joseph the carpenter's son and who does he think he is we didn't need postmodernism to have skepticism. And by the end of chapter six, they're gone. This is the anti church growth chapter. You want to hear the numbers? He goes from 5,000 plus to 12. Fire this guy, whatever you do, or at the very least, get him a publicist because he doesn't know what he's doing. 5,000 plus to 12. And in verse 66 to 69, Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, what about you? What about you? You've heard my message. You've been with me. Are you skeptical? Do you think that what I have to say isn't the real deal? What about you? Are you going to go away also? And Peter, the author of our text, For once, when he speaks up, he got it right. Got to hand it to him. And he says simply this. To whom shall we go? Where could we possibly go? You have the words of eternal life. What do we say to ourselves when either Explicitly or implicitly, we neglect God's word and we entertain the idea that maybe it's not all that we affirm in our doctrinal statements that it is. What do we say to ourselves? We say to ourselves exactly what Peter said. Where else are we going to go? To whom else will we listen? What other voice would we possibly want to follow? Because in this book, in this imperishable seed of the living and abiding and remaining and eternal word of God are the words, the very words of eternal life. It's the message that we have to preach to a watching world and it's the good news that we have to preach to ourselves. That we have, we have the very words of God for us, to us. And that is God's gift to us. All flesh is like grass. And the flower falls and the grass withers, but this word remains. Shall we pray? Father God, our hearts are just filled with gratitude that this imperishable seed of the gospel has been planted within our souls. We thank you and praise you For the good news that was preached to us. You have entrusted this book to us, your church, as its stewards. You've entrusted to us this ministry of proclamation, of heralding the gospel. Help us to be faithful in the task. And in those times when we are honest with ourselves... And we sense those clouds of doubt coming in. Convict us. And may we indeed listen to the words long written down. To listen to the wisdom and the truth and the power of this ancient book. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.